This episode is brought to you by Media Kicks, the leading influencer marketing agency. Media Kicks connects the world's top brands with engaged audiences through social media influencers. Their campaigns drive brand awareness, audience engagement, and product sales for top brands like Nordstrom, Blue Apron, David Yurman, Hallmark, and more. Visit MediaKicks.com to get started with your influencer campaign today. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Charles Seegers. Charles is the CEO of Ovation TV and Ovation New Media, America's premier arts and culture network. In his 10 years at Ovation, Charles has overseen distribution growth from 5 to 52 million homes, the acquisition of IMF from Universal Music Group, and the launch of Ovation's digital presence. Charles is also the founder of Seegers Media, a content production company best known for Disney's blockbuster franchise, National Treasure, which he co-created, wrote, and executive produced. Seegers Media also advises DreamWorks Animation, Machinima, Levity Entertainment Group, and Source Interlink. Earlier in his career, Charles served in senior executive roles at DreamWorks, CBS, Viacom, and E! Entertainment, before co-founding CountingDown.com, one of the first movie fan sites, which was acquired by Vulcan Ventures in 2001. Charles, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You bet. Charles, of all the people I've met, you have one of the most fascinating and diverse backgrounds. Ah, yes. <laughs> How do you typically explain your career path? I just say I can't hold a job, honestly. Yeah. That, that, you know, I used to joke about that on panels. People would ask me, oh, I can't hold a job. I think, you know, I have made sure to live my life as a bit of a bucket list, you know, and have wanted to experience as many things as I could. So it's been, you know, so far so good. A little counterintuitive, though, if you've been the CEO now at Ovation for 10 years. Yeah, don't even say 10 years. God, I can't (laughs) believe it's been 10 years. I think, you know, it came about by just really loving the arts. You know, I, I have seen what the arts can do for kids in middle schools and high schools and Back in 06, or maybe even early 07, uh, some investors had put some money into an arts network called Ovation that was literally in a million homes. And were looking to figure out how they could grow an independent linear cable network, which is impossible, to 50 million homes. But we had a plan. It's taken a good six years to finally get to a place of somewhat security with our distribution. And now we're really sorting are, are about to diversify into nonlinear digital in a couple of big ways. And there'll be some announcements soon. So Very we're exciting. excited about it here. So I, I feel like being here almost nine years has all been good. Can you give us a sneak peek in any of the digital initiatives that are coming soon? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, with what Comcast is doing with at Xfinity One and, and Watchable and obviously Go90, there's a huge category of arts that are being served on the linear side, but really not on the nonlinear side. And I think you're going to see us make some pretty strong announcements um, in very specific arts genres. We're going to expand into stand-up comedy with a pretty big partnerships with a big group, hinting, hinting, that controls a lot of uh, comedy clubs around the country. Fantastic. And Congratulations. So, yeah, we're, we're very excited about it. I like those guys. Yeah. Too. And and it's going to be live too mm-hmm. a lot of it, which is even more exciting. And I think you'll see us move into independent film a little bit. So all good. We'll get there. 
you mentioned your passion for the arts. Are you an artist yourself? Mm. I mean, what what kind of prompted that? Uh, not even close. Like <laughs> it is like, like most great people who try to help the arts. You know, we have a whole team of non-artists here who just go out and as a discovery mechanism. We we can't believe what artists are able to accomplish today. And being able to put a spotlight on that is where we get our excitement. So no, I, I don't even think I can barely draw. Yeah. Like I'm terrible at it. <laughs> terrible at it. I spoke with Adam Reimer on the podcast and he he's a musician, but he jokes about coming to LA and you realize that everyone else is way more talented than you yeah. will ever be. <laughs> that is very true. Especially That's been the talent. story all my life. Right. So it's been great to be able to even sit with some just extraordinary individuals. Let's travel back in time a little bit. Sure. You started your career working for some major brands like Nestle and then right. ultimately media companies, DreamWorks, CBS, Viacom, right. E-Networks, then transitioned to more entrepreneurial endeavors. What right. kind of prompted that switch? I think I just got tired of working for big companies. I think, you know, I like a decision tree where it basically rests with a small group of people. I found big companies to be you know, hard to navigate. They weren't very agile or flexible. You just get to a point where you're tired of it. Like you sort of say, God, we really should be trying that initiative. And when you get too much resistance, you say, geez, if I was doing that on my own, we would just go do it. And so I think that sort of was the transition for me. And was that what motivated you to start CountingDown.com? It definitely was. Well, though, I have to say, like, you know, DreamWorks was not that company. I mean, DreamWorks was pretty agile and flexible, and they actually gave me permission to start it. But I was a huge movie fan, still am, and noticed that in the world before there were really good web publishing tools, you know, a video player did barely existed. Advertisers who, when you want to get creative from them for online, they literally didn't have any creative. We saw the movie communities online just growing exponentially. And we thought rolling them up in the positive sense of the word and celebrating super fandom, we could create a pretty good business. And we did. And we ended up doing that in less than a year. And it flipped to Paul Allen and and Paramount and DreamWorks actually owned a piece of it. And it, it went very, very well. We were excited about that. And I think that was I think that was 99, 2000. I can't believe how old I am now. But, you know, those things haven't changed. I mean, you still hear the engagement and, you know, giving people the ability to communicate and share with each other. It's just gotten the technology has gotten so seamless now and so much easier. I think that has really accelerated these very specific super fan groups. And now they're being transacted just like they were in 2000. So that was your first foray into an entrepreneurial endeavor. It and, was. And yet less than two years, multi-million dollar acquisition by Vulcan Ventures. Yeah. How did you you know, deliver such a great outcome in such a short time period? Well, I, I think they quickly saw the power of super fans, right? And you know, it's not hard to figure out that when people love a certain subject matter, it doesn't matter if there's an internet or a tin can and a string, those like-minded people are going to find each other and talk about what they love. And so we just got out of the way. I mean, we gave them a uniform web publishing tool. We gave them a uniform video player long before YouTube. And we learned a lot of lessons, too. I think, you know, the one direction we wanted to go was to allow, you know, the mashups of movie trailers. And ironically, the folks who purchased it went the other way, which was, no, that's IP and we can't allow that to be done. And it really sort of damaged the community in the long run. 
I think they had a chance to have YouTube, quite frankly. And well, and this is about, what, five years before YouTube? It was. UGC was just kind of getting started. Oh, yeah, no, so. UGC. I mean, it's very hard to look some of the biggest IP creators in the world and say, ah, oh, don't worry about that IP. Just let people and let the fans play with it and have fun. It's a very difficult place to be in. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one of the reasons we flipped the company was if we weren't going to be allowed to continue to let that happen. I think we were happy to let it become more of a movie marketing machine. And it was quite, it's, it's actually not in existence, but pieces of it have been quite successful in and around the movie marketings of Paramount and DreamWorks and a number of different ventures. Around that time, you also served as a key advisor to the team at Hot or Not. Which oh, yeah. Sure. James Hong, fantastic. I mean, just talk about just technology guys with great just love for the customer and Those guys caught fire so quickly. You know, I think I have no insight into that company other than they spent their entire life figuring out how to make it as seamless with no friction and just listening, constantly listening to their users. And that, I think, is the secret for a lot of great online businesses. Yeah, I agree. Great guys. How did you meet them? Very, very smart. James, I can't even remember. Like, I, I got to ask James, you know, we still talk. I think what happened was he was a movie fan, too. And he saw our growth and thought, hey, we got like-minded sort of audiences here. We had figured out, by the way, ways to for our customers to seamlessly upload content. So it, we were all in that same sort of business at that point. And I think we just started cross-pollinating the sites. But James, just unbelievably talented. And, you know, you should go on and look on his LinkedIn at some of the companies invested in. You're going to see, I mean, this guy's got a great eye for investment and really smart. And I think he was on the board of Crunchyroll and his friends started Crunchyroll. And James is terrific. And then in 2004, you went on to create a constant production company and new media consultancy. Right. Sabers media. Right. And you've worked with DreamWorks Animation, Machinima, right. Levity Entertainment Group. Right. Absolutely. And Source Interlink. It's now Enthusiast Network. Right. Tell us a little bit more about that business. Well, you know, it started for me when I came up with the idea for National Treasure in 2001 and sort of wrote an outline and then sold it and the movie got made. I was very much focused on, you know, I always believed that online you could really create a clue-based treasure hunt to help sort of market, you know, a product, good or service, right? And since I was doing a movie about a treasure, I got very much into, at the time, trying to figure that out mm-hmm. and realize... And don't be shy. You're talking about the multi-billion well, dollar... No, it's, well, I'm just saying we, we caught some fire on that. <laughs> very excited about it. And I will say one of the exciting things for me was meeting with a lot of the up-and-coming technology businesses that were trying to serve you know, customers in a way where they could get a clue-based piece of content, but then be able to share it and be added to it, right? Try to figure out what other content they could add to help other people solve the clue. And in doing so, I realized none of us knew what the hell we were talking about. And it was so brand new that that's a great opportunity to start sort of a consulting company because we were learning in real time on how that worked and how to engage audiences and how to sort of hijack other people's sites who were desperate for some interesting content but couldn't afford to make it. I remember we called them takeovers, but that sounded so like imperialistic. (laughs) So I think new terms came out to soften that term. But we realized there was just a lot of content that was ferociously being eaten by customers. And if we could provide some really interesting content, we could really take over that audience on somebody's site. 
and really point them to what we thought was a good movie or a good you know product or service. So long-winded answer to say none of us knew what the hell we were doing. And we decided, well, let's go spread the word as consultants on we don't know what the hell we're doing, but let's try it. And and that's how we started the business. It was pretty funny. <laughs> Sounds like the traditional consulting model. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we have no idea what the hell we're doing, but I'm on the outside. So apparently so you'll tell listen. you what to do. Yeah, let me tell you what to do. Very good. Yeah. So how did you get involved with the Walt Disney Company, become the co-creator, writer, executive producer for National I uh, Started, I was, at, I was at the National Archive where all great things can happen. And the, you know, I call the National Archive the original archive of Google now, right? But you, I was there writing a Lewis and Clark documentary. And at the time, the Declaration of Independence was fading, literally fading away in its case. And there was a leak in this case that houses the document. And there were two document experts there that week. One said that if you don't open the case and replace it, this document's going to literally disappear and disintegrate. The other one said, well, if you open the case, it's going to disintegrate, <laughs> right? So I remember talking to the National Archive and saying, this is like a really bad moment for you. And he said, no, we're going to have to open it and figure out what to do. And I got fascinated with how do you secure this document? They were going to move it 12 miles outside of the city. And is it the FBI? And what if somebody tries to steal it? And I started percolating this idea about somebody steals the Declaration of Independence to protect it because they know some bad guys are going to get it. And I wrote a couple of pages around that. And then a month later, I decided, you know, I'm going to make it a treasure map on the back. And I brought it to a very close friend, Oren Aviv, who was the head of marketing at Disney at the time, who read it and said, this is a great idea for a movie. We can sell this movie, but I want to change like three or four things. And we started beating around some of the clues and we just decided to partner on this thing. We went out and pitched, sold it. Originally sold to, it was to Walt Disney, but we had Will Smith in mind. John Turtletaub, you know, we went to see John who jumped out of his chair and said, oh, my God, I could do this, this and this. We got John on board, went to Will Smith. Will Smith was on board. But then Will did Bad Boys 2, which delayed our script. Brookheimer came on, got Nick Cage, made the movie. There's the oral history, and I hope less than a minute and 25 Fantastic. Seconds. And then the um, sequel, and what can we expect from the upcoming National uh, The third year? one, the third one's good. It might have... Maybe the Rosetta Stone, the missing half of the Rosetta Stone. There's some, it's, it's a good one. I think it's going to be the best one, wow. actually. And, you know, I love the second. The second was based on some clues that we threw out from the first one because we didn't have enough time. Nick Cage has really nailed this character for some reason. It's, he's just quirky enough to, for us to all love this character. And we, and we love the third one. It's going to take us to some really great places, you know, but here in America, which Ooh. we love. And you're still involved in the whole process. Oh, writing. yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. The pitch process. Yeah, oh, yeah. Is so, there a, a release date tied to that? No, no. We got to get, you know, you got to get a green light from the studio mm -hmm. before we can get our release date. But for an idea that was an original idea, not a book or a comic book, you know, to have survived this long as a franchise is pretty good. So, you know, we thank everybody every day. A lot of fans of it. So we're excited. So Tying all these threads together, yeah. you know, starting CountingDown.com, going on launching Seegers Media and some other businesses. Right. 
Have you always considered yourself an entrepreneur? How did you discover that path? I don't really look at it as entrepreneurship. I look at it more as a quality of life. Again, I just, there are so many exciting ideas out there. And when you can get a team together to try to figure something out, that's where I am excited. That may be great entrepreneurship. I couldn't tell you. Like, I don't go to entrepreneurial seminars. I don't try to go on panels and talk about it. I just, I feel like, you know, when starting something from scratch, there's nothing more exciting to see if you can get it across a finish line. The people you meet, you know, are extraordinary in their own way. And, you know, I have always surrounded myself with smarter people. It's the cliche. But by definition, we won't go into this stuff, but I'll mention it, you know, back in my law enforcement days, you know, you wanted the best guy or girl around you, you know, you don't, your life depended on it. Right. And I look at it the same way. I, I don't, I know how to manage people. I know how to give them the tools and the freedom to get things done. And if they're a hell of a lot smarter in a field, just, just give them the tools and get out of the way. And I think that really is the secret and fun of starting things. Now we can call, maybe that's one bit of entrepreneurship for sure. Raising so, money is the other, and that's the most hateful process. <laughs> exactly. But, but I enjoy that too. I don't, I love going out and talking to investors because they're always looking for something interesting and if you can show them a terrific management team and idea, it's great to watch them become part of the process, you know, and we get to spend their money a little bit, but hopefully they can see the path to return. And it's our job as a team to get them there. You mentioned kind of this bucket list approach to life. What's left on the list? Uh, I can't, I don't want to go into my bucket really? list, but there is, there is, you know, there's a few things like, you know, there's definitely a few you know, I don't want to direct. So that should, that should be good. That's the cliche here in Hollywood. Everybody wants to direct. I do love a couple of categories. You know, I'm a, I love travel. I love cultural travel. And I think there's a lot of white space in how we start connecting people to great cultural travel using technology as a force multiplier. I am in love with 360. I love, you know, AR, augmented reality. You know, I can't tell you how much, even in 04, when we did National Treasure, I mean, I, I was inspired by an eighth grade field trip, you know, which is the ultimate augmented reality. We went to DC, we sat there and we had some of the greatest minds tell us about the places we were standing in. Now for technology to be able to bring me there now and have this overlay of just great context and facts versus fiction, it really can engage people. And so I think between cultural travel and augmented reality, I'm, I think one of the bucket lists is, is going to be playing in that space for Very sure. Cool. Yeah, well, I'm excited I have a lot of that. questions. I want to dig into this more. From a cultural travel perspective, what destination has been your favorite? I would say, you know, it's apples and oranges. And I would say that exploring the new seven wonders of the world, and I won't go down the list, but when you stand in front of the pyramids, you know, it is certainly awe-inspiring, but what I find so interesting is that the city has been built around it, that there is literally a Kentucky Fried Chicken six blocks away, right? And it's that kind of, I think, feeling of how we are expanding our culture across the world, the good and the bad. And I think we're all striving for these sort of interesting, immersive experiences. And 
we just need the tools to make the decisions to find those great destinations that we want to explore and love and be able to do it in a time frame that we can cost effectively, right, for both money and time, but then be able to share that experience with people. So when you ask me where my favorite place is, to me, it's wherever the oldest civilizations were with burgeoning new civilizations literally butted up right next to it. It's it's pretty amazing. Like, I mean, the Citadel in Iraq is crazy, right? You've, you have one of the most occupied cities, I think, for five, 6,000 years. And meanwhile, you have a modern city just built up right next to it. It's it's pretty exciting. I hope, unfortunately, with these wars, you know, a lot of our cultural treasures are being destroyed, you know, every day. It's I, a problem. I've had a really similar experience. You mentioned the seven wonders of the world. One of my most enriching cultural travel experiences is going to Cambodia. Amazing. Reap and Angkor Wat. And a lot of the temples were damaged in, you know, uh, several of the bombings yeah. of Vietnam War and, and others. But yeah. just to go to that place and experience, you know, the, the spirit of the people and the cultural elements of the history and the architecture, it's fantastic. That's right. Yeah. It's absolutely right. And, you know, we are, it's our tourism that is supportive of many of these countries. I think it's important for perspective. You know, listen, as adults, you make your own choices, but, you know, for kids to be able to at least be able to see it and want to go is a big driver of their educational experience. And it's going to make, you know, a whole generation of people just, I think, better human beings. And technology, you know, it's immersive. Let's talk about that. Immersive video offers a lot of opportunities, right? Virtual reality to travel to these places that otherwise would not be affordable. It it, it is like, you know, you look at virtual reality and people go, well, I'm going to go to the pyramids virtually. Well, you will, but you're going to, it only all boats rise. Like I, every time I see a great 360 film or any virtual reality, I now want to, it just makes me more excited to want to go there and actually feel the dirt, you know? And I am hoping between augmented reality and the actual full-blown virtual reality experience, it's only going to just create this sort of cultural revolution for people wanting to meet other people and engage, you know, on a much more human level around the world, I hope. And I love that you bring up augmented reality because it doesn't get as much of the spotlight as VR. But a lot of people think that that's where the money's going to be made. I think right? I think it is. Yeah. I mean, you know, virtual reality, it's just extraordinary, right? But, you know, there is this weird, I wish, I'm hoping there's going to be a great sort of psychologist are going to talk about this. You know, I'm sure scientists, there's a white paper somewhere, I have no doubt. But, you know, when you're in a complete virtual experience, your brain still never really syncs up with it. And there is this, you know... In my case, always this unhealthy paranoia that there's somebody else in the room behind me. But you realize that you're still never getting the full experience. And I feel like it's only going to get better. It's going to be great. There's going to be great applications for it. But I think augmented reality, just taking bits and pieces of an immersive experience with the real context of facts and figures, you know, there's nothing better than, you know, again, history buff, right? But there's nothing better when you walk the streets of New York and know, you know, Field Trip, I don't know if you know this app that Google did, Field Trip, they spun it out. It's a great app. But you can stand at the corner of, you know, 25th and Madison and you're looking at what is this beautiful skyscraper. And then you look down on field trip and you see that it used to be this great city tavern where Alexander Hamilton and these guys hung out. And you get a real sense of how could have this been only 200 odd years ago? 
you know, and it, the context of it is so exciting. And then getting, you know, fact and fiction, you know, we hear about Paul Revere's Midnight Ride is you're walking through Boston, but it was, this Midnight Ride was like to go 20 yards to get it silver protected, right? You know, so having that right at your fingertips, I think that's where AR is going to be extraordinary. It's What are you working for? ADP believes it's about more than what you do. It's about why you do it and the people you do it for. That's why we're designing a better way to work so you can achieve what you're working for. ADP, always designing for people. It's going to be an amazing learning tool. Just truly an amazing learning tool. How do you see it impacting the arts and the work that Ovation does? Well, I think I think it's going to be probably something that, you know, for, again, cultural travel. You know, the arts is a big driver of cultural travel. So the idea of being able to walk the footsteps of some of the greatest artists in the world, whether you're leaving your desk or actually there, Augmented reality is going to be amazing, right? Because you're going to be able to stand on the spot where Van Gogh painted that unbelievable painting, but then you're going to just literally at your fingertips, you're going to get a sense of the context. What was his life like? There was the house he lived in, right? And to have all of that archive available to you, literally on your smartphone, as you're standing in that place, you're going to learn so much more about the human versus what has always been sort of this just two-dimensional guy named Van Gogh, you know? So I think we're just going to just eat that technology up, put it as many places as we can. And what is your focus this year, personally, as well as for Ovation in 2016? I think, you know, for Ovation, it's just going all digital now. We, we have to offer some nonlinear content. The one thing we have got to figure out is how do we live on our current old linear model but invest in what clearly is not the future, but is the present, which is getting a generation of people who we know love the arts, who explore the arts, but to be able to give it to them in the kind of bundles and curated bundles that they deserve, because this stuff is hard to find. And it's even, you know, the most enabled millennial right now trying to find the top 10 ballets and then behind the scenes of those ballets and then being able to follow some of those dancers as they go through their career, it's incredibly difficult. But we are working on ways to bundle that and curate that content for them. But discovery mechanisms is, is you know, you and I have been on panels together and, you know, I've talked about that, that you don't want to be a tree falling in the proverbial forest because there is so much great content out there, but get it, finding it letting your most valuable customer know that it's been curated and available to them has been the hardest thing. How do you improve discovery, right? There's so many different approaches to it. Facebook yeah. focuses on social sharing, YouTube search, all of the Netflix above, has all the above. engines, all okay. of the above. Yeah. Like I am not shy of saying you have to be everywhere and you have to have the functionality to listen and evaluate what is working in real time and be agile in your organization to double down on something that is working. And most companies aren't good at, it's hard for us. You know, we have long-term contracts with our MVPDs and they're trying to unbundle, right? You know, they're trying to figure out that world and we're, we're certainly helping them with buckets of content that we think, you know, can engage their nonlinear cord cutter, however they want to describe those folks. But again, discovery, it's, really tough. 
I mean, and, and I think the social recommendation engine is really where it's going to be in the future, which is, by the way, no different than 1910 Radio. And, you know, I was probably old enough to remember 1910 Radio, <laughs> I feel like. But there's been a lot of talk about everything being so new. And I look at it and say, well, this, is, this happened in 19... You know, Radio in 1910 was general entertainment. Then it went through a period of 20 years of going to genres of just news and talk or whatever it may be, right? And that's why it exists today. It serves very specific fans. And by the way, Will Rogers was a guy you followed. So it, it wasn't like you were following KDKA of Pittsburgh's radio station. You were following that particular host or DJ or whoever it may be. Nothing has changed. Television went through the same thing. Broadcast was general entertainment, right? Then cable came along and started to do more genres. And then even inside cable, who would have thought there could be a food network 24-7 or a home and garden network 24-7, right? Those air and water categories have always empowered super fandom and have always empowered advertisers to want to connect with them. And then the ecosystem is created. I don't see any difference when the internet was invented, right? I mean, it's different mediums. Look at Maker, look at Full Screen. You know, those are two giant MCNs. You know, the MCNs were not a business. They were a survival mechanism, right? It was, I've got a hundred channels about something. And now I realize because I have to spend 45% goes back to YouTube, I need 74,000 channels, right? Now I'm an intellectual property discovery mechanism of content that I can then bring to scarcity ecosystems to figure out a way to monetize. But look at Fullscreen and Maker in particular. The first thing they did to rebrand their businesses were to become, oh, I have an auto channel and a food channel and a, I'm back at 1910 radio again, right? And then the second wave of MCN saw a clear need for verticalized content, right? That's absolutely right. So if you're a style hall, it's like, you know, I'm going to do one thing and I'm going to do it massively across every platform. I'm going to be, you know, beauty and fashion or, you know, Motor Trend. When we launched Motor Trend, Chris Argentari, the first thing we always talked about was a guy who loves a Camaro could give a crap about a BMW, right? So we have to quickly make sure we're drilling down individual fandoms, right? And when you do that, I do believe there is a classic direct response environment now. I mean, as great it is, putting spots in general entertainment online is fine. But when you have, you know, give me 30,000 Camaro lovers versus 4 million sketch comedy Lovers, I know how to monetize those Camaro guys and girls, right? I can sell them a $50 decal and that decal can change throughout the year and I can have a continuity program, right? And they're happy you have found that great tool for them. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like we are that social recommendation engine is always jet fueled by super fans. Like when it becomes category, you just got to get out of the way. Just give them every tool to explore it and get out of the way. So bringing that thought, you know, yeah. kind of to the next step, radio is a hundred years old. Yeah. TV is six years old at this point. Video is what? 10 years old, maybe a little bit, yeah, a little bit older. It feels like so it. So we yeah. have so much more. Oh, we're in the wild west. Yeah. What this are, is so in the beginning. What are some of the categories you think are still just kind of underdeveloped? I think all the categories, even mm-hmm. though there is, you know, there's 150 great sort of food channels, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's tasty or taste made or I think all of those are still open. I will say that people follow people. <laughs> 
social recommendations come from human beings to other human beings. So the talent in that host, if we will, are going to only be more important in the future, you know, and I would say that there isn't a category that you can't find now. I think you'll quickly discover stronger opinionated voices in those categories that are going to be able to, you know, grow a whole new, literally a whole new look at the food industry or a whole new look at the auto category. I mean, I, th- I think it'll be all based on who the talent is. Let's hope so. And I totally agree. Food and auto are two, I would say, especially underdeveloped right. categories in digital that are right. very healthy in traditional media absolutely. and have a global appeal in right. evergreen CPMs. So That's, it's absolutely right. And I think, listen, I think, you know, one of the most genius companies has been scripts. Imagine a 125-year-old newspaper company had the thought to start a linear cable network around two categories. And the real genius there was Ken Lowe, who's the current CEO. And Ken, I remember Ken told us a story that back in, you know, 1999 or 2000, you know, he was, he'd opened the food section and it was always sold out with advertisers in the newspapers. And he's thought, well, why can't there be a 24-7 food channel? Very simple. And by the way, all of the food shows on broadcast were all highly rated. So to curate all those and put them in one place, starting to sound familiar, right? It's the same thing. It's great curation online. The tools give us the opportunity to do it. If you can connect great curation with a fan base and give them the tools to tell 10 people, that's how you grow these categories. And I think you have to get them hyper-involved in communicating back what they like, they don't like. And you have to be willing to change it. You just can't not listen to your audience, mm-hmm. right? Even for a second. And, you know, more businesses have gone upside down, you know. And I'm excited. Listen, the one I'm most excited about is Facebook. They're this just giant that has yet to unleash its force in video. And I think it's going to be pretty exciting. I think this is the year when we're really going to see Facebook yeah, make a big play. I do, I do too. And it's going to be exciting for any content creator mm-hmm. and anybody who's trying to get the word out about good content. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, let's wrap up with a yes, few sir. rapid fire questions. Oh God. Uh, so on that note of predictions, no, ahead. I don't recall Senator. <laughs> no idea. Do you have three, uh, three things that come to mind that you see in the near future? Let's not count the MVPDs like Comcast and those guys out. I think they've got the message, you know, which is we have to go completely nonlinear. We got to go completely unbundled. Yet we also can provide a real premium video experience inside the household with connected devices. And I think you're going to see that relationship with the Googles and the Nests and all start to come together. And mobile carriers get into the game. Yeah, and then you got, yeah, and listen, you got Verizon and Go90. I think they've done an excellent job trying to seed big content deals. They've got a long way to go on the app, but that's the nature of that, right? You know, they could have sat around and wait for it to be perfect, and that would have been a really bad idea. They needed to get in the game, and they're in the game. And I think you're going to see the Vodafones and the Telefonicas and worldwide wireless is going to rule. And, you know, one thing I'd love your opinion about is Twitter. I was such an avid Twitter user. And between Facebook Video Now and a number of different other companies, I'm starting to just not be a Twitter guy anymore. And I, I don't know what's going to happen there. You know, Twitter seems like it's been very effective for news. 
yeah. and for, I don't know, highbrow content. And it seems right. to have lost that instant appeal that it initially had for the casual creator, right? Who's right. turned to Instagram or Snapchat or other right. Facebook in many ways right. for that type of communication. No, I'm not a Snapchat guy. So mm-hmm. neither am I. Yeah. So, but you know, don't say that in this town though. Maybe one day. Yeah, I know. Well, <laughs> yeah. Someone's going to hunt me down and right. throw me in Santa Monica Bay. Exactly. I'm sure. I'm anxious to see what Twitter does. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, they... Well, with Periscope and with Vine, I think they're making some interesting video. Posts. I think they got to go, listen, it's master of the obvious, but they got to be all video. They've just got to really engage what are amazing. We talk about hosts and people you follow. To be able to get access to more video from them specifically for that platform, I think could really help drive usage. But I don't know. You know, it's hard. You go public and the next thing you know, you're... The game, fighting for, the game has changed completely. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see. So my, my future for Twitter is I want it to work. I want it to go all video. The more folks that are aggressively trying to do mass platforms for video is always good for us customers and consumers. Oh, for sure. So excited about it. If you were starting a business in the online video space today, what would you do? <clears throat> I'd go uh, micro category and super fan based. I wouldn't even think about trying to do general big broad category stuff. I would find 10 great people who have a strong opinion about a particular category and point of view. And then I would enable them seamlessly with every possible bit of technology so that they could make quick consumable video with their strong editorial point of view. But I would never go broad. Sounds like the Ovation Digital Playbook. Yeah, let's hope. It's going to be a long road for us. But I think if I was starting something, forget even the auto channel, just go all Camaros all the time, (laughs) right? You know, go Chinese food in a food category, all day Chinese all around. And I would say bring in travel into it. Make sure it's internationally based. You know, those categories are a universal language. People cooking is a universal language. Cars around the world, certain kind of cars are a universal language, art, universal language. So when a lot of people used to, over the last five years, get degraded for their valuations for, oh, well, only 60% of your traffic comes from international and it was like you would hide it in your business, I think it's just the opposite. I think you if you can get a like-minded group of people internationally in many different languages around a specific category, you're going to own that. You're going to own a very, very valuable business. Mm-hmm. So that's what I would say. Charles, where can people find out more about you? OvationTV.com. Dig in. Learn more about us there. Search the good and bad articles. We've done great stuff, bad stuff. Sometimes our content doesn't work. But we've got a group of 80 people here that experiment like no others in the arts. So you can just type in Ovation and come find us. Fantastic. Well, thank you again for being on the show. This was you so too. much fun. Appreciate it. We all enjoy <laughs> your show. Thank you. Well, thank you. You always have uh, really good people. Terrific. Despite this that. one. Yeah, <laughs> we'll work on the guests. All right. This good. one has been outstanding. Good, Thanks good, again. Good. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time. Mm-hmm.